This evening's reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 21. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 21. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters... I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, and we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, 
my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Well, good evening, everyone. It's now more than 20 years since City Church started. Some of you were here when we had our 20-year anniversary back in September. And when City started in 1999, I was working full-time as a surgeon at Heartlands Hospital. And as the church grew over the next few years, I gave up surgery and went full-time as a pastor. And what I want to tell you is something that happened at Christmas 2002. I went up to Scotland for Christmas, went up to visit my, my mother. She wasn't a Christian. And she had a dinner party, and she invited a bunch of her friends around, and we were sitting there eating. And someone asked me, how's surgery going? Are you still as busy as ever? And I said, no, no, I, I gave up surgery last year to work for the church. And you could have heard a pin drop. Everyone put down their knives and forks. And my mother was crimson with embarrassment because she hadn't told anybody. She hadn't told her friends. She liked to boast about me as a surgeon, but she was pretty ashamed of me as a pastor. And I found that kind of difficult. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, we saw how there were factions in the church in Corinth. We read, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. People boasting about their favorite leader and putting others down. And, and Paul isn't impressed. He's, he said back at the beginning of chapter 3, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Now, I'm not suggesting that that goes on at City. I hope not. I don't think so. But it is easy to think like that about Christian leaders, to boast about some of them and put them on pedestals, and to be pretty critical and judgmental about others. That's human nature. And Paul says here, where we're starting tonight in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, do not deceive yourselves. Don't be taken in by all of that stuff. People think they're wise because they're following someone or other. Someone who's good with words, someone who speaks in tongues, someone who looks impressive. And Paul says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Real wisdom looks foolish to the world. Now, Paul has already said that God's wisdom is foolishness in the eyes of the world, and now he says the wisdom of the world, verse 19, is foolishness in God's sight. And he quotes Job. He catches the wise in their craftiness. 
I mean, people might be fooled, but not God. You can't fool God. God knows what you're thinking. And he quotes from Psalm 94. The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. God knows everything. God always has the last laugh. To be truly wise, you must be prepared to look foolish to others. So let me just ask you as we set out tonight, are you prepared for that? We asked that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Are you prepared to look foolish? Christians in Corinth, are you prepared to look foolish? Christians at City in Birmingham. The world worships its leaders. Leaders in business and commerce, stars in the music world, fashion icons, whatever. But listen to what Paul is saying. Stop boasting about your leaders. Stop it. Stop boasting about your leaders. Because we so easily do it. Don't we? I mean, don't we? The Corinthians are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Evangelical Christians say, oh, I follow Luther, I follow Calvin, I follow John Piper, I follow Tim Keller. Don't treat Christian leaders like celebrities. Don't read their books as if only through their writing are you going to hear from God. Don't ask them to pray for you as if they had a special hotline to God. William Carey was a pioneer missionary in India in the 19th century. And when he was dying, his friend Alexander Duff went for a last visit. And they talked together about Carey's life in the mission field. And and Carey whispered, pray. And he knelt down by his bed and prayed. And then he said goodbye. But just as he got to the door... He heard Carey's feeble voice calling his name and he stepped back into the room. And Carey said, Mr. Duff, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey. Dr. Carey, when I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's saviour. Now, the Corinthians could have learned a lot from that. And let us be sure that we learn from that. Don't boast about your leaders. They're only servants of the church, whether that's leaders within city church or wider Christian world. They're only servants. Christian leaders are not in a higher spiritual plane than others. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. In the 19th century, there was a man called Brownlow North who was converted in his mid-40s after a pretty shocking, dissolute sort of life. And he became a preacher... And then when he died in November 1874, his congregation inscribed in his tombstone these words, he preached the gospel with singular power and was greatly honored in winning souls to Jesus. And then later on, they found his own Bible in his study and they opened it and on the flyleaf in his hand were these words, Brownlow North, a man whose sins crucified the Son of God. Well, when we started City Church 20 years ago, I wrote that in the flyleaf of my Bible. Hugh Thompson, a man whose sins crucified the Son of God. The Corinthians are saying, we belong to our leaders. And Paul is saying, no, you don't. Your leaders belong to you. You don't belong to your leaders. Your leaders belong to you. 
So verse 21, no more boasting about human leaders, says Paul. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. The Corinthians are are running around there jostling for position. And Paul says, why? Why are you doing that? You don't need to do that. Haven't you realized what it means to belong to Jesus? You want to belong to your leaders, but listen, listen. Your leaders belong to you. In fact, everything belongs to you. If you're a Christian, look at verse 21 again. Paul and Apollos, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. You're united with Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. Why on earth would you try to belong to some human being? And if you look at verse 22, Paul lists there the things that that threaten to capture these Corinthian Christians and us. Look what he says. Paul and Apollos and Cephas are yours. You don't serve your leaders, they serve you. You don't need to follow any man or woman to give you your identity or your status. You belong to Jesus. And then he says, the world is yours. The world is always trying to squeeze you into its own mold, but finally it's the world that belongs to you. Christians own everything. The meek will inherit the earth, the lot. And then he says, life is yours. People think this life is all there is, but Christians have spiritual life. Christians have eternal life. And then he says, death is yours. Men and women live in fear of death as the end of everything. But death is a defeated enemy for the Christian. You're looking forward, forward to eternal life. The people in this life are are hoping for 80 years. You've got 80 billion years and then endless years beyond that. And then he says, the present is yours. For many, life seems meaningless. But Christians have a relationship with God right here and now. And it's a relationship which will go on forever. And then he says, the future is yours. So many people live their lives with crippling anxiety about the future. But for you as Christians, the future is secure. You know where you're going. You're going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus in the new creation. Christian, all things are yours. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you're united with Jesus. You're co-heirs with Christ. Get, Get your head around that. Fancy squabbling about how, who looks important when the whole cosmos is yours. Verse 23, and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Have you got that, says Paul? No more boasting about human leaders. They're only servants of the church. And they're not accountable to the church. They're accountable to God. Stop boasting about your leaders because it's God they will answer to. It's God they will answer to. Chapter 4 and verse 1. This then, says Paul, is how you ought to regard us 
as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Those entrusted, it means someone under authority, someone who administers the affairs of another. We might call them a steward. In the first century, when the owner of a big house or estate went away, he put a steward, a sort of manager, in charge of the household until he got back. And the steward was in charge of running the household and distributing food and wages to the servants, and he was trusted to do that rightly in his master's behalf. And the steward wasn't answerable to the other servants. Of course not. The steward was answerable to the master when he returned. Now that, says Paul, is the situation of church leaders. They're servants of the church, but specifically they're stewards entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed, looking after the household until Jesus returns. Christian leaders are stewards of the gospel. It was a mystery hidden through all the centuries of the Old Testament till Jesus came, and now it's revealed. God's wonderful plan of salvation. What a responsibility. Verse 2, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. It's dead easy to just quietly sort of edit Scripture so that people will like what you say. It's really easy to, to set out to be popular with the congregation. But Neil and Jonathan and I are not here to entertain you. We're not here to say what, you, what we think you might like to hear. Sometimes church leaders have to say hard things, maybe from the front on a Sunday, maybe individually in private. And we're not answerable to you. We're not. We're answerable to God. Now, later in this letter, we're going to discover that the Corinthian Christians look down on Paul because Paul isn't impressive enough for them, maybe not imposing in his appearance, not skillful as an orator, not wealthy or, or successful. Does that worry Paul? Well, no, it doesn't, not a bit. Verse 3, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. The Corinthians can't judge Paul. He's not their servant. He's God's servant. If you're a student here this evening, just imagine someone in your, in your year at university comes up to you before the exams and they say, listen, I'm going to decide whether you pass or fail. I don't think you'd be terribly bothered, would you? It's not up to her. You're not accountable to her. It's the lecturers and professors that are going to judge well, Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any other human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Final judge of Paul's ministry isn't the congregation at Corinth, and it isn't Paul himself. Of course, it's right to examine ourselves and what we're doing, whatever our role may be in the church, whatever ministry we may be involved in. But it's easy to deceive ourselves, and it's easy to fall into the trap of making human judgments. 
For someone who serves in a church where numbers are growing and people speak well of you, you get puffed up and pleased with yourself if you're not careful. If you're serving in a church where it's really difficult and you're seeing little fruit, it's easy to have a sense of failure. Self-examination is all right, but at the end of the day, it's only God who's going to judge. So a a high-profile minister in a large congregation looks successful, but only God knows what's going on in his heart and whether it's all driven by pride. And they may not even know themselves. Paul says, my conscience, verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Or think of a little old woman who can't get out to church any longer. And she feels pretty useless. And she says, all I can do now is pray. But God uses prayers to do wonderful things. So here's the thing. God doesn't call us to be successful. God calls us to be faithful. God doesn't call us to be successful. God calls us to be faithful. If God is going to be be our judge, that means that all human judgments are at best provisional. Verse 5, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And that's something to remember if you serve the church in any capacity whether that's preaching or leading a home group or a leader in Student Plus or serving coffee or moving, whatever it may be, when people speak well of you, that's nice. But you're not accountable to them, you're accountable to God. And if people look down on you, it's a great encouragement to remember it's what God thinks that finally matters. And it's important that we recognize the relationship between a church and its leaders. Church leaders are not, are not employed by the church to do what the members want. Church leaders are supported by the church to do what God has called them to do. Well, now Paul turns from looking at what the church in Corinth thinks about its leaders to consider how the leaders see themselves. So look on to verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Well, what is the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written? Well, it's the scriptures. What, What is written is the scriptures. And the pattern we find over and over and over in the Bible is this. Suffering now, glory later. Suffering now, glory later. That's the Christian life. God's promises point us forward to the coming kingdom of God. And, And we do have to wait. And I guess crises like the coronavirus are a good reminder of that. And Christians aren't exempt from all sorts of issues and problems and illnesses and difficulties. And God's promises are for the world to come. We have to wait till Jesus returns for all the blessings to be ours. But it seems that at least some of the Corinthian Christians aren't content to wait. They want all God's blessings now. 
And the Christians in Corinth are falling into the trap of congratulating themselves when the church is going well. They want to take credit for what God is doing. And Paul has some questions for them. And they're great questions. Have a look at them. They're in verse 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Any gifts you have as a Christian, any abilities were given to you by God. And you can't take any credit for them. Any more than you can boast about having fair hair or long legs or whatever. Everything is given to us by God. The air we breathe, the measure of health we have, the food we eat, everything. James said in his letter, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. And Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So listen, how careful we need to be to give God the praise for everything we have here as a church at City, all the blessings we have. We have missionaries. We just met one of them, Rachel. We have missionaries. Well, praise God for them. It's God who called them to go and leave home and go overseas. We have Sunday school teachers. Praise God. He gives them the ability to teach our children. We have student plus leaders. Thank God for equipping them to teach the Bible. It's all God's doing. There's no reason for individuals to be puffed up. All Paul's letters, or almost all Paul's letters, start with thanks to the Christians he's writing to. But he never writes, thank you for what you do. He always starts, like he started the verse Corinthians, I always thank God for you. I thank God for you. What do you have? What makes makes you different from other people? Well, God does. He made you everything you are, and he did it for your glory. The root of all sorts of problems in various churches is this. We're too taken up with ourselves. What do people think of me when I play music or lead a student plus group or teach the Bible? What do people think of me? And of course, it's good to do these things well. But our significance in God's kingdom doesn't come from our ministry gifts or our abilities These things are bestowed on us by God. We're just sinners saved by grace. There's no place for pride or elitism in the church. And the Corinthians have gone and imported worldly values into the church, behaving as if there are important Christians and less important Christians. Now, I hope we don't think like that. And I hope we don't just behave like that unthinkingly. I hope that sort of thing doesn't determine who you sit beside in the service or who you talk to at coffee time afterwards or who you arrange to maybe meet up with through the week. Many, many years ago, I started going to a church in an industrial town for a while and most of the members had manual jobs 
And I was constantly, repeatedly embarrassed by one of the elders who kept bringing up members to introduce them to me. And he would say, I'd like you to meet Hugh Thompson. He's a surgeon, you know. Now we have a surgeon in our congregation. Well, so what? Do surgeons make better Christians than others? I don't think so. My mother was proud of me when I was a surgeon, and she wasn't proud of me when I was a pastor, but she wasn't a Christian. Surely church members should know better than that. So Paul has said, stop boasting about your leaders, and now he says, stop boasting about yourselves. Some of the Corinthian Christians seem to have been pretty full of themselves. Verse 8, already, says Paul, already you have all you want. That means you're, you're full up, you can't eat another bite. Already you have all you want, already you have become rich. They sound pretty smug, don't they? And Paul is quite sarcastic. You've got the lot, have you? You've arrived and he goes on and says, you have become, begun to reign, and that without us, us apostles. Now, there are plenty of modern-day Corinthians around in churches, and they want all God's promises now. Name it and claim it, they say. Your children of the king live like that. And it starts out with how we do evangelism. Become a Christian and all your problems will be over. Being a Christian will be a bed of roses. And it goes on with the prosperity gospel, telling us that all Christians will be wise and healthy and successful. And it all seems great until, until they encounter some, some suffering in their lives or, or some tragedy and then everything fall, falls apart. And it seems as if God has let them down. So Paul says, already you have become rich. And Christians in many parts of the world, well, they just laugh. Wouldn't they? Christians in prison in North Korea. Christians living as second-class citizens in Muslim countries. Christians whose homes are burnt down by Hindus in India. Millions of Christians, have they become rich? Have they begun to reign? How absurd. They just can't wait for Jesus to return. Their eyes are fixed in the glory to come. For many, many millions of Christians, living for Jesus in this world is really, really hard. I wonder what Paul would say to us. Already, you have all you want. Well, it was easier to feel like that as a Christian in Britain until quite recently. When I was a child growing up in Scotland, Christians used to be respected, even admired. And now we're just beginning to see the reality of what it means to live for Jesus, to live for Jesus in a world which hates Jesus. It's Jesus' footsteps we're called to walk in, isn't it? Well, it is, isn't it? And, and Jesus endured suffering and death, followed by resurrection to glory. The Christian 
life is patterned in Jesus' life. That's the blueprint we saw at the moment ago. Suffering now, glory later. Get your heads around that. As, as Christians, our salvation is secure and our privileges are immense, but we have to wait. We have to wait for the new creation to receive all that God has promised us. And for now, Jesus says to us, take up your cross. Now, Paul knows all about that. Paul goes on to point to himself and the other apostles, and he talks about the realities of authentic Christian living. Stop boasting about yourselves, he says, and accept the shame of following Christ. Accept the shame. Paul writes about what it's cost him and the other apostles to follow Jesus. Verse 9, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. After the Roman army won a great victory, they'd, they'd hold a procession, a parade through the streets. They, they called it a triumph. And the, the, the procession would march through the town, down the main street with the crowds cheering. And first came the generals and the standard bearers. And then came the chariots and the cavalry. And behind them came the foot soldiers. And then lastly, right at the back, the prisoners in chains, stumbling, exhausted, humiliated. Where did the Corinthians see themselves in the parade? Well, at the front, of course. They're kings. But look what Paul says. Verse 9, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. Christians don't look like victors in this world. Most of the time, in most places, Christians look like hopeless losers. Is that how you think about the Christian life? Here's what Jesus said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What do you think that looks like? In the Roman Empire, a man who was going to be crucified, a man who was walking, carrying his cross to the place of crucifixion, had lost everything. It was a one-way journey out of this world. No possessions, no stature, status, no future, no hope, no nothing. As far as the world was concerned, this was a dead man walking. And that's what Jesus did for us. He took up his cross and he carried it to the place of execution and gave up everything for us. But is that how you think about your earthly life as a Christian? Is it? Hebrews talks about Christians bearing the disgrace Jesus bore. In the eyes of the world, being a Christian is a disgraceful thing. We're starting to see that in Britain. The Corinthians want to look wise and strong and important, but Paul is scathing. Look at us apostles, he says. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. 
A number of years ago, there was a man who used to travel in the London Underground every day, all the way from Morden, all the way into the West End. And on his knee, he held a briefcase with a big sign, which said on it, I am a fool for Christ. And when the carriage was full, and everyone had seen it and pointed and giggled about it, he turned the briefcase around. And then the other side was a notice which said, Whose fool are you? To the world, Christ and the cross looks foolish and weak. And to the world, Christians look foolish and weak. We saw that in chapter 1, if you were here. And, and Paul is saying you can't follow the way of the cross and look good. You can't do it. Don't you wish that wasn't true? But it is true. It is true. And we have to come to terms with it. You can't follow the way of the cross and look good. And Paul catalogues some of his own experiences as a Christian. And what a contrast to how Corinthians see the Christian life. Verse 11. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. Doesn't look much like a success story. What a lot Paul has given up for the sake of Christ. He doesn't stand in his dignity. He doesn't retaliate. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Are we ready for this? Are are we? I've spent the last 42 years since I became a Christian watching the status and reputation of Christians in Britain being slowly and steadily dismantled. Are you ready to be second-class Christians, second-class citizens, like Christians in so many parts of the world? Are you ready? And just in case we haven't got it, just in case we've managed to shut our ears, Paul spells it out again. Verse 13, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Scum, that word for the dirty stuff you wash down the sink. Garbage, what you scrape off your plates into the rubbish bin, or maybe scrape off the sole of your shoe. The world wants rid of us. The world wanted rid of Jesus. They thought they'd got rid of Jesus. And as I stand here and I look at you sitting in your comfortable seats, wearing your nice clothes with your good education, and I look at us and our comfortable lifestyle, I fear it's very difficult for us to grasp this. I really think it's hard. But the vast majorities of Christians around the world, they have no problem at all understanding that. Ask Christians who live in a Muslim state. They're called dhimmi, and they're very much second-class citizens, and they're very limited in the jobs they can do, and they, and they pay special taxes, and they're often subject to persecution. Ask Christians in a Hindu society treated as untouchables, the lowest caste, ostracized outcasts subject to violent attacks tell them christians are scum of the earth and the garbage of the world and they'll say yeah we know that 
We know that. We experience that every day. And I'm just not sure we get it. We live in a society with a Christian heritage, traces of Christianity remaining in many British institutions. Christians meet in nice buildings and sing nice songs and do nice charitable works. And we find it hard, we still find it hard to imagine why anyone would despise us or hate us. But Jesus said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If we want to be respectable and acceptable, then we'll end up being like the Corinthians. Now, Paul has set out some of the hardships and disgrace that he's endured. And now in this last paragraph of chapter 4, we're just going to spend a moment on this. He urges the Corinthians to follow his example. Accept the shame of following Christ. That's what he's saying. Accept the shame of following Jesus. That's what I've done. And, verse 16, I urge you to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that extraordinarily daunting. Christian leaders are to teach the gospel. Not only that, they're to teach how the gospel works out in everyday life. Not only that, they're to model it in their own lives. And Paul's authority is based on Paul's own example. Later in this letter, he's going to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, gosh, I wish I could always say that. Don't you? Calvin once said it would be better for the preacher to fall and break his neck as he enters the pulpit if he is not himself going to be the first to follow God in living his own message. And this is not just for preachers, is it? This is, this is for all of us. And Paul is sending Timothy to Corinth. Look down to verse 17. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And then after that, Paul himself is going to come to Corinth. Verse 19, then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. And the Corinthians seem to think that power is all about looking impressive and being, uh, being important and talking a good talk. But it's all just hot air. It's all just for show. And Paul says, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. If you want to see God's power at work, don't look at the world. The world's not bringing anyone forgiveness of sins or transforming anyone's life. If you want to see God's power at work, follow the way of the cross. It's not going to impress the world. Jesus didn't impress the world, and neither will we when we follow him. Writer to the Hebrews said this, Fix your eyes on Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't boast about your leaders. Don't boast about yourself. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 
And we're going to need God's help to do that. So let me pray for us as we finish. Heavenly Father, how, we, how alarmed we are to read about the Corinthians and to see in that church even just a little of ourselves or of churches in the United Kingdom in the 21st century. Please deliver us from having anything other than Jesus at the center of our church life and our own personal lives as Christians. Please deliver us from the desire to look good in the world and to impress people. Please help us to wait for your well-done, good and faithful servant. To value only your assessment of our lives. And to live waiting for the day when we shall meet the Lord Jesus and be with him forever. Amen.